0: Long. Um, I'm going to start with a question. If you had to write a letter that was going to go back in time to your great-great-great-grandma, and she was going to read it in the year 1900, maybe there's not enough greats in there, your ancestor in 1900 was going to read a letter, and you had to, in 500 words or less, explain to her the iPhone X. do you think you could do it? Because in the midst of describing the phone, you've got to talk about what the Internet is, wireless connection, what email is, and FaceTime, and you could see somebody across the world in an instant facial recognition software, different apps. How would you think you'd go about writing that letter? If you really actually tried and sat down and tried writing to a letter to somebody in 1900 and talked to him about the iPhone, he, here's what you would realize you'd have to do. You would have to find some kind of language and words that they do understand in order to explain to her something in the future that she does not understand. So at best, at the very best, you might have this kind of like vague sense of or she might have this vague sense of what you're talking about, but in actuality, she will have no idea what an iPhone is at the end of that letter. And it struck me this past week. This is what Jesus talking to his disciples about the end times is like. He has to describe something in the future. In this case, an event, the end times. And he has to use some kind of words and language that they would understand in the present in order to describe to them something in the future that they do not fully understand. So at best, these disciples might have a vague sense of what the end times are, but in actuality, they would have no real idea of what's coming. And I say that to say this. When we uh, are in the middle of Mark 13, we started last week, we're going to finish it this week, um, there could be this sense of frustration of how vague the end times are to us today. And I just think we should embrace not knowing with complete certainty everything we read in Mark 13, and it's not a failure to embrace that difficulty. This morning, we're going to finish the chapter, and it's going to be a lot. It's going to be verses 14 to 37. If you missed part one of this um, uh, sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go listen to it online or via our church app, because there's going to be a lot I'm not going to be able to repeat and kind of cultivating the groundwork for what end times is and how you approach a sermon like that, because we have a lot to ground to cover to finish the chapter. But I need to repeat one thing, because it's going to become important to remember throughout the passage and that this whole discussion started with Jesus making this comment about the physical temple in Jerusalem saying, you know what, not one stone is going to be left on top of one another someday. And so the disciples hear that and they kind of come up to him afterward, four of them privately, and go, when are these things going to happen? Because in their minds, the end of the age and the destruction of the temple were going to happen at the same time. So they're going, well, we're talking end times. Jesus, when will this happen? And so all of Mark, the, Mark 13 is Jesus' response, and it's a prophetic chapter looking into the future. And the events and the timeline of the events of the things that will happen in Mark 13 happen at varying time frames. It's called near view, far view prophecy. And it's important to know because there's really two events Jesus is talking about in particular. There's the near view, the immediate fulfillment in the year 70 AD, 40 years in the future from when Jesus is speaking. If you know about church and church history, you know the year 70 A.D., but if not, this was the year that there was a rebellion amongst the Jews of Judea. And the Roman emperor, uh, Titus, at the time, brought an army in and just completely destroyed the city, killed tens of thousands of Jews, and then went into the temple and destroyed the temple and then burned it afterwards. And that imminent event will then serve as this kind of type Or a foreshadowing event to what would happen in the end times. And so so throughout Mark 13, Jesus is speaking about both events. What's going to happen in 70 AD, but then also talk about the end of the age of the second coming. And so it's a very confusing chapter. You have to read very closely. And I'll just, fair warning from this morning, like we're covering a lot, it's going to feel like drinking from a fire hose this morning. Like your head will start to spin. But I want you to hear me. Jesus is going to end this chapter being crystal clear on how he wants his disciples to react to this teaching. And so here's where Mark 13 departs from this silly illustration of you writing to your great-great-great-grandma, and that your grandma could read that letter and go, toss it away and not think about it ever again. It won't affect her life. She was smart. She would start a generational letter of invest in Apple whenever you hear Apple <laughs> as a company. But that's on her. That's not on you. It would not affect her immediate life. But when Jesus is talking about the future, it matters. And he will speak with this urgency for how the discussion of the future should shape and mold you in the present. So here's the flow of this morning. The first two-thirds, a lot of confusion. Fair warning. The last third, it's gonna be a clear ending. So hang with me. Read closely. Follow along as I read aloud. Mark 13, we're going to start with verses 14 to 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. There's a lot happening in those eight verses, but it all starts with this one ominous phrase we have to deal with, the abomination of desolation. Like, what is that? And specifically, who is that? Because Jesus says the abomination of desolation will be standing where he ought not to be. So to start, this phrase is not a phrase that Jesus just came up with on his own in the moment. It comes from the book of Daniel. And it's uh, Daniel, if you know your Bible, it's an Old Testament book. It's kind of half history but then half prophetic and it occurs there three times. Let, let me show you just one, so I'll have it up on the screen. This is Daniel eleven thirty one. 31. Daniel's speaking of a future day. Okay. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes Desolate. So Daniel was speaking of the desolation to the physical temple in Jerusalem, the the Jewish temple, which which I think is why these verses primarily refer to the destruction of the temple that will occur occur in the year 70 A.D. So I don't think he's talking in these verses about end times. And when that Roman emperor will come in, uh, history tells us he will stand in the midst of the temple where he should not be. Why? Because it's a Gentile standing in the middle of a Jewish temple. And command his army to tear it down. Little anecdote, if you were listening closely there, uh, you you notice that little phrase in parentheses, let the reader understand. Um, That that really can mean two things, one of two things. Uh, Jesus could have actually said that in his teaching, meaning let the reader of Daniel understand that this is what he was writing about hundreds of years earlier for those who know their Bible. Or it could be that Mark inserted that as this kind of like editorial comment to signal to the churches reading his gospel that Jesus is referring to the reference in Daniel. Either way, I think you're pretty much getting to the same thing, that the phrase abomination of desolation should make the reader think about Daniel's prophecy. And I think it makes the most sense that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple that would occur in 70 AD, because then that makes the following verses make sense when he says, those in Judea will flee to the mountains. Like, that's a very specific region. Judea is the region where the temple was in. It's the region where the rebellion occurred and where the Roman Empire will come in and shut it down. And he says, listen, this invasion, it's going to happen suddenly, suddenly. And when the Roman army arrives, you're not going to be like, excuse me, officer, can I go home and get my coat? It's cold. He says, no, if they come in, like, you got to go. You ever wonder where the phrase run for the hills came from? It will be unfortunate for women who are pregnant or those who are nursing with young children. Why? Because it's going to be harder for them to run for the hills. He says, hopefully it does not happen in winter. Why? We're talking Middle East, right? We're not talking about cold or snow. But winter was their rainy season. And the rivers and the gorges would be impassable on the way to the mountains. And then there's the transition. This is what it means, like Mark 13, you really have to read closely to try and interpret. Because in verse 19, he says, For in those days, which I take to be a continuation of what comes before it. So I think, verses 19 to 22, not everybody agrees. But verses 19 to 22, I still think he's talking about the same event in 70 A.D., and he's not talking about end times yet. And he's describing 70 A.D. as a, quote, great tribulation, the greatest that the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people have uh, have faced in their history, and it would never be rebuilt again. When this second temple, in the second temple period, when it was shut down, it would never be rebuilt to the extent that it was. And so the Lord was merciful in cutting short the days of destruction, meaning that the Roman army will not completely blot out the nation of Israel. They are not going to try and kill everybody, the whole Jewish race. And then Jesus gives another warning about false Christs that will arrive in this time of turbulence, of chaos, of people who will come in and try and act like the second coming of Christ, will try and gain a following, gain some power. And he says, don't believe them. They're going to come back saying they're me after this temple is destroyed. Do not believe them. They're going to lead people astray. Talked a lot about that last week. And then an identical command to what we did see last week. We see it again. He says, be on guard. He says, guys, don't get caught off balance. I'm telling you this now. I'm telling you this now. Do not get caught off balance. And then next... Jesus is going to start looking further out into the horizon, and let's pick it up in verses 24 to 31. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory." And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, it puts out leaves, its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I would venture to say these eight verses are the most difficult in Mark 13, the most difficult to interpret and try and understand. And the reason is because it's not really clear whether Jesus is still thinking of the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD or if these verses have turned eschatological, meaning referring to the end times. And so it's possible that it's actually both, right? The passage we just read, I think we can agree, maybe you disagree, that that was about 70 AD. And the next passage that we'll finish the chapter with will certainly be about the end times. But this one sandwiched in between, I don't know, both, maybe? I love how one commentator put it. He said these verses, verses 24 to 31, are the hinge between the near view and the far view. Well, you might say, well, why is it so tough to figure out? Again, look closely at transitions. Uh, Before, he said, for in those days. That for is a word of transition that continues on. But now in verse 24, he says, but in those days, after the tribulation. So what are we talking about? Well, he could be talking about the days following the destruction of the temple. That's kind of my first inkling. Or he could be jumping to the end times. But in those days, after the tribulation. But then afterwards, we've got to be looking at it. The language starts getting pretty apocalyptic, didn't it? The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. Stars falling from heaven. Like, that seems like end times language. I don't know what that means. Again, this goes back to the iPhone, right? You have to use language that they understand to probably describe something they definitely don't understand. So you might think, okay, now we're thinking apocalypse. Now we're thinking end times. Nah, eh, it's more complicated than that. If you go back to the Old Testament, it's not the first time the Bible speaks this way especially in the prophetic books when God pronounces judgment on nations that are overtaking Israel, you're going to read a lot of the same things. The sun and the moon were darkened. The stars lose the brightness. Okay? So maybe it could just be a figure of speech, a way of talking about judgment upon the Roman Empire following their destruction of the temple. An empire that we know now did not last forever. You know what I mean? (laughs) Mark 13, pretty tough. But I would lean towards Jesus Now starting to set his eyes on the far view, on this cosmic upheaval of this vision of a time leading up to the second coming, because now he starts talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. I think you'd have a hard time taking that line and inserting it into 70 AD somewhere. And all will see his coming. It will be the most glorious day ever experienced. That Jesus, the king of the cosmos, will return. And all who believe in him will be gathered from the ends of the earth. Like, that is going to be a glorious day. I, I can't help but think about the book of Revelation here. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. One of the best kind of, I think, batch of verses in the Bible. have it on the screen. This is the apostle John's vision. Who is here asking Jesus these questions. Of the people of God that's going to be multilingual, multinational, coming together in unison in salvation and worship of God. It brings us back to verse 10 from last week when Jesus said, remember, first the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. And I know we're moving fast here, but Jesus then goes back to the fig tree. Do you remember the fig tree? If you were with us. So we have to remember timeline here of Holy Week. This conversation uh, that we're reading in Mark 13 is taking place on Tuesday evening of Holy Week. And it was just one day after Jesus cursed the fig tree on Monday for having the appearance of figs because it was in full bloom. But upon closer look, it was all leaves, no fruit. We saw that sermon back in the fall, but for them, this is just one day difference. That word picture is still very much on their minds. And Jesus says, fellas, Remember the fig tree. Once its leaves are in full, you know it's almost summer. It's a sign of summer. So also these things that are all taking place, you'll know the time is near. That the end of the age is near. So we're like, all right, yeah, we're talking end times. But then you get to verse thirty, and you just get thrown for a loop. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay, now what? You might think, oh yeah, this was then times, but now he's saying this generation, meaning, okay, now we're back to A.D. 70. All this is going to happen. So now maybe all these verses were just language to talk about 8070. 70. It's possible. Or, think c- closely with me here. When Jesus says this generation, he means the generation in the future that is seeing all these signs of cosmic upheaval. And then the return of the Son of Man, the generation that sees that that generation will not pass away until the heavens and earth get replaced by the new heavens and new earth. Who has a headache? Grace group leaders, good luck this week, all right? You're not allowed to cancel your meeting. And the disciples probably were. I mean, can you imagine them? Like, they asked one simple question, when's this going to happen? And they get this, And they were probably just deer in the headlights, and yet, in the midst of uncertainty, Jesus, I think seeing just their like, oh my gosh, what is happening, he just puts forward this beautiful promise. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Reminds me of a verse in my favorite chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 40, when it says in verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever nothing you see or experience in this world is more true, more reliable or stronger than god's word. and it's the only thing in this world that will be left standing. so set your feet on the rock. all right, we're flying on purpose. let's get let's finish the chapter. verse mark 11. nope, sorry, mark 13. pick it up in verse 32 to the end. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all stay awake. I mentioned in the introduction that we're going to move fast and it's going to be confusing, maybe overwhelming, but then we're going to get to a very clear ending. And I'm sure you picked up on it just in that passage. What does Jesus want from his people in light of this whole discussion? Stay awake. Four times he says this. So even his disciples can't miss it. And that is a phrase we should hear closely if he said it once, but he just said it four times. Okay, students in the room, you'll appreciate this. If a teacher or professor is giving a review before a big final, and in that review, he says, here are some things you're going to have to pay attention on. If he says something four times, like, hey, guys, study chapter 12. And then a little bit later, he goes, hey, did I mention chapter 12? Chapter 12, like you should really pay attention to chapter 12. It's really important. And at the end, he goes, guys, memorize chapter 12. <laughs> you would be a fool to walk out of that and be like, man, I just wish we knew what we're supposed to do. <laughs> like, this whole big exam, it could be anything, I don't know. Like, well, I just wish we had a little guidance on what we should do and how we should prepare for this. With this kind of finish that Jesus gives... Even if we're still confused on what will happen in the future or when the events will take place, we should not be confused on why he is talking about the future. Stay awake. It's a vivid physical word picture to get across a spiritual commander exhortation. Stay awake in the faith. In my study of this chapter, I I read one guy, he said, this chapter on the end times is for sleepy Christians. And that hit me. And I want to dig into that before we really finish with what does staying awake means? Let's talk about what it means to be a sleepy Christian. I, I can think primarily of four ways we can be sleepy Christians. Number one, when we've grown apathetic to the worship of God, where there's little evidence of a real worship of God in our lives, where we might no longer be stirred up by His attributes and, and who He is, and, and we're no longer experiencing the joy of this healthy, close relationship. A sleepy Christian is somebody who says, used to a lot. I used to read my Bible. I used to love going to church. I used to pray a lot. I even used to share my faith with people who didn't believe and had a real concern for their souls. But over time, other things have crowded in, like ivy growing on the front of a house. And the worship of God has waned to the point where the relationship just starts to feel distant. And it's only really present one hour a week on a Sunday morning. And even then, if we're honest, I'm just not getting much out of it. I I want everyone to hear me, but especially younger generations, students, young adults. Growing weak in the worship of God is often the first step on the pathway to walking away from the faith altogether. Because when God is no longer big enough to worship, it's only a matter of time until he's not big enough to be believed either. And it becomes all the easier to join the chorus of the world in starting to question aspects of his word. When someone walks away from the faith the faith of their youth, the first step is always a failure to worship him for who he is. It's number one. Number two, sign of a sleepy Christian. They've grown weak in battling sin. Where over time, again, they've come to accept the presence and at times prevalence of a certain sin in their life. They've, they've kind of made peace with it. They've cut a deal, and maybe even begin to boast about it, where, where they're overplaying the freedom they have in Christ, and they misapply that to the fact that it doesn't really matter if we just keep this up a little bit. It doesn't really matter if I just drink a little bit too much here and there. It's just here and there. It doesn't matter if I revel in the gossip of so-and-so's situation and make light of it when they're not around doesn't matter if we lie to make a few extra bucks to support our family it doesn't matter if we expense more than we should at work on our reports when we travel it doesn't matter if i'm by myself if i look at porn just once in a while it doesn't hurt anyone right i mean it doesn't change who i am i still believe but it doesn't hurt if i do that once in a while and all the while we think we're safe because after all We've been doing this for a long time and God hasn't struck me down yet, right? Must not be too upset with me. A pastor I heard speak at a conference this past year was talking about uh, when, when he, how insane it is when he sees videos online of people hugging lions, Either they're trainers or they raise them up as puppies and they're like lying with this lion, like stroking its mane, like just kind of having some fun with it. And then everybody gets surprised when the story turns into the fact that this lion turned on its keeper and bit him or attacked him. And everyone's like, I can't believe he did that because like he had him since he was a cub. He taught him everything he knows. And this pastor was like, yeah, it's a lion. That's what they do. It's not your pet. Church, sin is not your pet. And yet some of us are lying with it, and we're stroking its mane, and we think, I have this under control. It is a matter of time before it turns on you and rips you to shreds. Listen, we will never defeat the presence of all sin in our lives on this side of glory, right? It will be a struggle, but... There is a difference between struggling against sin and making peace with it. Some of us need to be honest whether our spiritual muscles have gone and grown flabby and weak. Well, after that, you might say, you know, Pastor, I've been coming here for a while. You talk about sin a lot. Why do you talk about it so much? And maybe you're an inspired Like the last thing I need to be reminded of is that I'm a sinner. You might think I tell myself that all the time. Like no one's harder on me than me, and and that might be true, which is why number three is in some ways the opposite of number two, and yet just as dangerous. Number three, a sign of a sleepy Christian, is somebody who forgets God's promises. Where we cannot get out of our minds that God would never save a wretch like me. I'm outside the bounds of saving grace. You know what? My mistakes, they're too deep. And you're looking around going, nobody is as dirty as I am. I'm a fraud. My flaws are too serious. I am too far gone. And we can get caught in this spin cycle where we don't abuse the freedom of Christ like number two. But rather we never embrace the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. And we never embrace all of its benefits and and know that it was God's joy to forgive your sin. And remember them no more. When the Bible says he forgives you as far as the east is from the west. You know why it says that? Because it's infinite. Go outside and try and measure how far the east is from the west. You'll never get there. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, that is the promise in Romans 8 of all promises that deems us fully loved, fully chosen, fully provided for, not because God got pigeonholed and had to, but because he wanted to. And when you think about it, reasons two and reasons three, they're both sourced in a form of pride. They're opposite, but they're opposite sides of the same coin. One says, i have my freedom in Christ so that I can just do whatever I want and it won't matter. And the other side, number three, says, God would never save me because I'm too bad. Different entrances to the same house. And maybe the promise you need to cling to is that God will never leave you nor forsake you, and once you place your faith in him, you cannot and will not lose your faith because the reliability of your faith is not on you, it's on the one who saved you and he does not fail. Number four, fourth sign of a sleepy Christian, they've grown cynical towards life and other believers. And I think this one often happens the longer we are Christians, where there's a mindset that sets in that is so pessimistic towards everything around them. I'm like, you know what, nothing will ever change. It's just been this way forever. I've, I've given up hope. It's just always going to be the way it is. What's the point of doing this? What's the point of even saying that? It's a drop in the bucket. It's not going to mean a thing. And then also gets cynical and sometimes sarcastic towards others who are passionate in their faith. Oh, like look at them over there on their high horse. And oftentimes it's the Christian people have been Christians for a long time who end up being a wet blanket on those who are on fire for Christ. Whatever, they're probably hypocrites. They probably have some hidden sin that they're not telling anybody about. Sleepy Christians struggle to really rejoice with others who rejoice because they themselves are mad that they're not getting some of the same success. And likewise, they struggle to mourn with those who mourn. Because why does your situation have to bring me down? I don't have time for that. Do you see yourself... In any of those four examples of a sleepy Christian, I know there are times I do, and far more times than I'd like to admit. So let's do this right now. It's going to be a, a, an act of honesty which we can struggle with, but if any time in your Christian life, if one of those four have been a struggle for you, raise your hand. Hi. Just take a look around. All right, next measure of honesty this is going to be even harder. Raise your hand. If you feel like currently, right now, doesn't matter which four, one of those four is something that you're struggling with. Okay? It's about 80% of the hands that were first up. Let's get rid of this mirage that everyone as church has it together. And oftentimes we're very good at covering up our struggles, but the reality is we want to struggle with others, and the Christian life is a struggle. And it always will be. And so if that's you today or if that will ever be you in the days ahead, here's the exhortation of your Savior. Stay awake. The call on our lives is to be faithful with every moment we have, making the most of the life we've been given. Staying awake looks like giving your life in anticipation of what the guaranteed future is for us all. That Jesus is coming back, and he's going to gather his people, And we don't know when that will be, but it could be any moment. You know, it's an interesting question to ponder. Is your life today, where you stand today, February 10th, 2019, is your life shaped more by your past or your future? I would venture to say, for the believer in Jesus Christ, your current circumstances in life are a product of your past, both things you had control of and many things you did not but your current approach in life is a product of your future. Current circumstances, product of your past. Current approach, product of your future. And your future is glorious. So stay awake, eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, and that will lead to the life that you live to the fullest. A life lived for Christ is not boring. It's not just waiting around, there's all these fun things I can't do because I'm a Christian. It's fully engaged in the work he has called you to, which includes, back to verse 10, the work of proclaiming the gospel to all nations. And there is nothing mundane, unimportant, or boring about a life that seeks to witness for Christ. And it won't be the easiest life you could live. And it probably won't be the most comforting life you can live, but it will be the most exciting and fulfilling one. We need to hear this in the suburbs, okay? Comfortable living is boring. Christ-centered living will take your breath away. It will keep you your eyes fixed on Christ, and it will be the mark of a Christian who stays awake who worships God, who is strong in battling against indwelling sin, who clings to God's promises, and who engages with life and other believers. You know, there's a very intentional reason why I did not take six to eight weeks to go through Mark 13. Like, I kind of wanted to, to be honest. And you know how slow I go at times where I could have easily done that and just work through a few verses over the time and and pour over all the signs and go to the scripture references and what's happening in Daniel and maybe what's he talking about that's coming in Revelation and just microanalyze and turn over every stone of Mark 13. Here's why I didn't. Because Jesus is telling us that our eyes fixed on signs is just going to make us anxious. And if your great-great-great-grandmother read your letter explaining the iPhone X in 1900, she would be confused no matter how often she read that letter with the language you tried to use for her day. But if she were alive to see it today, you know what she would go? She'd be like, oh, yeah, no, that all makes sense now. I just couldn't see it back then. And there's something there. I suspect this is what it will be like on the final day for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. We're going to look back on God's word and look back on Mark 13 and go, oh, yeah, it all makes sense now. I just couldn't see it back then. So we are grateful for Mark 13 today because we need a glimpse of the future just long enough for us to fix our eyes on Jesus in the present. And this is what he wants not to pull out charts and predict a date when he's coming back, but for people to look into their own soul and reaffirm their faith in a Jesus Christ who will certainly come back. Let's pray.